so this this is the second bit, the, the contemplation four bit of the of this day, and um, I will start with this reflection that um, it has often been argued that uh, progress in science and in technology is uh, putting us at odds with uh, spirituality. Uh, that science and technology have displaced spirituality from the center of our lives. And that we now entrust everything we believe and everything we do uh, to science and technology and not to the gods anymore. Now, I think this is certainly true with uh, with traditional expressions of spirituality, as, as we may encounter in the belief systems that we have inherited from institutionalized, conventional religion. And uh, probably depending whom you ask, uh, they may either think of this displacement as something positive, the progress of humankind, moving from irrational beliefs towards greater enlightenment, or they may think of, of it as something negative, some great loss for humanity, as it removes from it the value, death, meaning, and significance of our existence, as provided traditionally by the religious frameworks. But I think that this positive versus negative interpretation of the advancement that we are seeing in science and technology is misleading. Because uh, actually, uh, genuine scientific inquiry, I think, is fundamentally spiritual, per se, very spiritual. Because uh, to inquire is to open, to open up to the unknown, to to let curiosity and wonder drive this inquiry and to allow oneself to be transformed by it. So it emerges from being aware that we do not know and that we need to question. And actually that is what I think faith is, is about, or at least how I, how I understand it. I like what the Boston College philosopher Richard Kearney stated that uh, he said that for faith means knowing you don't know anything absolutely about absolutes. So, contrary to what one may think, think faith is not about belief, nor is it about truth, or certainty, or dogma. I think faith is ultimately about inquiry. As there's no certainty, no fixity, or isolation in the universe. So our human journey of life, our spiritual journey, is a journey of inquiry, and to be on this way of seeking, and to keeping the emphasis on the, on the seeking and not on what is sought. So it's the way that is the goal. And this is the reason why I think that genuine scientific inquiry is essentially contemplative at its core. Because it's vocational, it 
it's permeated by an attitude of awe and wonder. It relies on open communication, on, on sharing, on trust, uh, it, thus creating a community and building upon this community. So scientific inquiry is done in communion. It is something that requires silence, it requires attention, patience, care, respect. You cannot rush into the scientific inquiry. It is uh, gratuitous and loving, and it is transformational. It, it purifies our experience. It frees us from mythical understandings of reality. And it is also profoundly humble. Scientific inquiry is profoundly humble. So, at, so for me, as a scientist, displacement by scientific inquiry of conventional forms of spirituality is for me actually a, a, a sign of, of spiritual growth. And uh, scientific atheism has been for many people, and for myself as well, an important step of, of going beyond conventional understandings of spirituality. And uh, the, the, the philosopher Richard Kearney that I quoted above coined an expression that I, with I, which I identified very much, which is the expression of an anatheist wager, of anatheism. To give a name to this spiritual journey that makes us move from theism where we attach to some conceptualization of God, to atheism, when we get rid of our God altogether, to anatheism, when we return to God after God. The prefix ana from anatheism uh, means back to. So, but it's a returning, it's a returning in, on God terms, to say, having actually let go from him completely before. And I think the, AI, the artificial intelligence research program, as any other scientific inquiry, I think has to be situated in this larger context of this anatheistic journey, so which is ultimately a journey of inquiry, of opening up to the, to the unknown, to, to the stranger, to, to the new ideas, and allowing oneself to be humbled and to be transformed by these explorations. So about 100 years ago, Sigmund Freud identified three important scientific revolutions that have changed substantially our, the understandings of ourselves. First, he said, was Nikolaus Copernicus, who revolutionized our understanding of the cosmos. He showed that we are not in the center of the universe. Then came Charles Darwin and revolutionized our understanding of life. He showed that we are not the pinnacle of the biological kingdom. And then Sigmund Freud himself said he was the third revolution because he revolutionized the understanding of consciousness. That he showed that we are not the masters of our mind, of our consciousness. Now, these three revolutions have progressively 
dismantled the anthropocentric understanding of, of reality that we had, displacing humanity from the center to the periphery of the universe. And I think by humbling the human being, these revolutions have at the same time enlarged humanity's freedom, humanity's native freedom. Because it was only by exerting this creative freedom to inquire really what humanity uh, is or, or, or looking for answers to this permanently question of who am I that these revolutions have, have been able to, to, to exist. Now very recently the, the Oxford philosopher of information called Luciano Floridi has argued for a fourth revolution. And he claims Alan Turing is revolutionizing our understanding of intelligence and of rationality. Because he showed that we do not have the exclusivity of rational thought. He claimed that computing machinery could also think. Now, I, I think we lack the historical perspective to judge if we are going through a new scientific revolution of this same significance and scope of these previous ones. But there is some truth in the fact that research and artificial intelligence is indeed transforming how we understand cognition. Because our progress in AI research, I think, is making us evident which aspects of our cognitive functions, of our cognition, of our mind, can or cannot be characterized in terms of information processing and therefore if they can or cannot be mechanized. And the research in AI also has been helping us to, to clarify these, these ideas. And as a result, I think AI is driving us to revise this dominant notion of rationality. Rationality as conceptualized metaphorically according to this rational choice model that I talked this morning that looks at it as utility maximization. And it is even uh, driving us to revise if rationality is what distinguishes us as human being or not. Because now we know that machines in certain aspects of definitions of rationality are better than us in being rational. So, I think when we look at these scientific revolutions that I mentioned, these, these scientific revolutions should be evaluated, not, they should be evaluated by how they contribute, by their contributions to what creative freedom does to us and for all beings. And I think here's where the critical situation of humanity is right now, that we are facing right now, and which can be a matter of life and death. And the current danger that we face is that we forget the metaphorical nature that we have of our conceptualizations of mind, intelligence, rationality, and that we 
make and take them literally. That we don't see the metaphors anymore that are endowing our scientific models. And so, so, so we, we, we give these endowed scientific models a certain ontological reality, as if they, they are what, they, what there is. And I think when this happens, our models, the scientific models, cease to be only descriptive to describe the phenomena, or predictive to predict what is going to happen. They threaten to come prescriptive, showing us how we have to live. And, and if intelligence, for example, is taken literally as computation, and reason is taken literally as to compute, then it is a very small step to attempt to take any process that requires reason, for example, medical diagnosis, or sentencing in a trial, or personnel selection, to take any of these processes and to standardize such processes in terms of algorithmic step-by-step -step procedure whose outcome can be suitably measured, compared, in order to achieve improved performance and to strive for excellence. And then we, as we unconsciously rationalize all these human activities in terms of algorithmic computation, due to our inability to see the metaphor anymore, then we humans unnoticeably adjust our decisions and actions to these rationalized processes without questioning the aptness of the metaphor anymore. The metaphor was good for these processes. And since machines are better and faster at being rational in this metaphorical conceptualization, then humans can be easily replaced by computing machinery. And actually, it would even considered unethical not to replace the human by machines. Because if an AI-based diagnosis system, for example, performs medical diagnosis with a much lower error rate than a human physician, should we not hand over the diagnosis task to it if he's doing it better? It would be unethical not to do so. Or if an AI-based autonomous vehicle transports goods and people with a much lower rate of accidents than a human lorry or taxi driver, shouldn't we hand over the task of driving to it? So I think this, that creates the following paradox. During the last three centuries, I think technoscience has become the prevailing instrument and symbol of human liberation, providing more and more creative freedom to individuals and societies in how they conduct their lives, their affairs of life, in the economy, in government, in the law, in healthcare, in education, etc., etc., etc. But by rationalizing our process due to the advancements of science and technology, and in computing technology in particular, what we are doing is we are removing the creative freedom 
originally granted to, to the decisions that taken by traders, by policymakers, by judges, by physicians, by teachers, we take them away as we straightjacken them within algorithmic procedures. And I think science and technology's contribution should ultimately be evaluated not in terms of utility only, not in terms of economic growth, not in terms of maximization of a performance measure. They, I think they should be evaluated in how they help and enlarge our creative freedom. And not only of people, but also of all creation. And I think this also applies to how we should approach AI research. And if we stay in the current framework that we have inherited from industrial societies, which is centered on material production and utility, which is governed by a producer-consumer economy, uh, where well-being is conceptualized as wealth and measured in terms of monetary value, etc., etc. And if we stay on a conceptualization of artificial intelligence in terms of an autonomous, rational agent that maximizes this expected utility, then this AI-based technology may, at the end, continue to provide benefits, but only to a minority of the human population, and contribute to strengthened current power distributions. And it may continue to nourish the producer-consumer economy, which is not leading to a liberation of but more to slavery. So, so this AI research program and Luciano Floridi's fourth scientific revolution I mentioned earlier can thus become, I think, the best alley of a societal model driven by this rational choice theory and by computational metaphors of, con of rationality in which freedom will be further and further curtailed. And um, are we not already starting to notice these effects? An example, for example, is the trend to algocracy. Algocracy is the rule of algorithms, algocracy. And it's the increasing reliance of decision-making process to algorithms. Stock trading, for instance, and the, and the financial market in general is almost exclusively governed by algorithms today. And I don't need to remind you how the current financial system in the world has curtailed individual and social liberties as it lets us, has led us into the, the global financial crisis. Or another more local example, for example, of algorithm it would be algorithm-governed policing. In Chicago, the police were using algorithm-generated heat maps to identify people who were most likely to be involved in a shooting. However, a recent study indicated that the use of these maps did not reduce crime, but instead led to over-policing marginalized communities and to an increase of likelihood that certain people would be targeted for either police and arrested after a certain shooting case. 
So this is curtailing our freedom. So nourishing freedom, I think, is a sign of spiritual growth, as freedom itself is a, a spiritual dimension. So mm, the question is, how can we make freedom shine through artificial intelligence research, as well as other research endeavors in technoscience, so as to make this research really a true witness of humanity's journey of inquiry to fullness of life. Well, scientific inquiry is a very particular kind of inquiry. It is this sort of inquiry that leads us to a way of knowing that is based on information. It's a utilitarian way, a utilitarian form of knowing. This is why scientific inquiry is also the driving force of our technology. Technology is a very fairly new term, what until the 20th century was known as the useful arts. So it is driven by this utilitarian view of, of knowledge. But information itself arises from our capacity to establish distinctions in our experience, on our capacity to draw boundaries. Uh, notice that we all live in a world of opposites. So we organize, opposites organize the physical space we live in, up and down, inside versus outside, big versus small, here versus there, left versus right, and opposites also provide the content of our beliefs. True versus false, appearance versus reality, being versus non-being. They also structure our values. Good versus bad, pleasure versus pain, freedom versus bondage. Where do all these opposites come from? Well, contemporary cognitive scientists claim that it is our embodied experiences that creates them because this embodied experience with our world creates in our cognitive unconscious certain pre-linguistic structures called image schemas with which we construct our conceptual system. For instance, when we're babies, and we interacted with our environment, putting things into other things, hiding them in boxes, grasping them, eating them out again, and so on. Our cognitive unconscious constructed a schematic image of what containment means, or what containment is, general, is in general about. So in a containment, you have a boundary, which separates an interior of an exterior. And in subsequent stages of our cognitive development, we use this basic cognitive structure acquired from our experience with the body and the world, to, and use them, such as containment, and we use them to structure more abstract concepts. For example, the, the concept of category. From our 
again, bodily experience with the world, and that we see that things that share common properties tend to be bounded by the same region. So we see trees together in a forest, grapes on, on vines, or herds of animals, <coughs> flocks of birds. We structure, we structure the concept of category using this containment schema, and so we put in the category of grapes what we identify to be particular grapes, while those things that are not grapes lie outside the category of grapes. So metaphorically, we construct our categories with, the con with our experience of containment. Uh, sorry. So from our experience, from our experience of observing that things that share common, so, yeah. And so we classify things as being inside and outside the categories we create. So horses, trees, birds, etc. And the further we grow in our cognitive abilities, we start to create more and more abstract categories, but they are all ultimately structured on this containment schema acquired as little infants, which establishes a boundary with an interior and an exterior. And so arises the world of opposites. And we have big versus small, true versus false, good versus bad, pleasure versus pain. And this binary logic of containment and this notion of classification into categories lies at the heart of the notion of information and of information-based knowledge, of this information-based knowledge that we gain with scientific inquiry. Because to inform, literally, means to put into form, where Latin, the Latin word forma, means a contour, a boundary. So, and the word science itself also comes from the Latin scindere, which means to cut, to divide. <coughs> However, image schemas, such as containment, form what is called a gestalt structure, which means that they, com they, are, they come all together. So we cannot think about an interior if it's not conceptualized with respect to an exterior and a boundary that distinguishes interior from exterior. The same holds for the exterior, which does not exist without an interior or a boundary. And whenever there's a boundary, we create an interior and an exterior. And this gestalt structure transfers to the opposites that we have conceptualized in terms of containment. So there's no pleasure without pain. There's no pain without pleasure. There's no goodness without badness. There's no badness without goodness. Now, as I said, the image schema, as the cognitive scientists say, is a pre-linguistic structure of our cognitive unconscious. Now, when speech kicks in, then something wonderful happens, which gives us a lot of power. Because speech enables us to give names to these categories and to the opposites we have created. And this allows us to evoke, with the simple, simple utterance of a word, 
such as pain, we evoke the entire universe of experiences we have classified as painful. But this capacity is also what alienates us from each individual, particular, unique moment of experience. The experience prior to the categorization into the pain category and outside the pleasure category. And this, our capacity of naming, gives us also the illusion of separation. Because we can now further read with the word that names a particular category, constructing arguments that only make use of the word pleasure, without explicitly mentioning the word pain anymore. So, and this in turn lets us think that we can get rid of one of the halves. So, this, this manipulability that speech provides us has been so successful for the flourishing of our species and has granted us so much power that we take the world as we came to know it in this way as real. This word that arises from this information and subsequently manipulability of it. The Oxford professor of information, Luciano Floridi, said, what is real is informational, and what is informational is real. That's where we have arrived with this notion of information. Sorry. But this is only half of it. But because the power we have, the power we have gained by this categorizing and naming comes with a loss of immediacy. And the knowledge we gain by this information comes at the loss of the uninformed immediate experience. Paradoxically, though, by virtue of the same capability that we have to categorize and name, we also gain the awareness that boundaries with its interiors and exteriors and the opposites they create are not intrinsically out there in the world. They are actually only in the eye of the beholder. And so is information. So our capacity of speech is thus a double-sided sword, so to say. On one hand, it cuts the words in opposites and makes us think of the world as we know it, full of dualities, full of information. But on the other hand, it makes us aware that we know that what we know is relative to our bodily experience shaped by our cognitive unconscious. So, as to make us realize that reality is also an unknowable, an undivided, an absolute, non-dual dimension. And uh, none of these two dimensions, the relative and the absolute, is more real than the other. It is the same world. It is the same reality. Not one and not two either. 
So it's not that there are aspects of the world that we can know and others that we cannot know. No, all reality and every aspect from it can at the same time be known and be unknown. And that's why I think that that's why scientific inquiry is itself only half of it. And scientific inquiry, because scientific inquiry is based, is based on boundaries and categorizations, it creates dualistic knowledge, it is based on information, and it yields knowledge that, can we, that we eventually, that eventually can be put into use through technology. And therefore, scientific inquiry is also the driving force leading to progress. For progress itself requires categorization, because it is basically moving away from what we categorize as bad towards what we categorize as good. So we progress by pursuing one half of the pair of opposites, health, pleasure, beauty, wealth, by attempting to eradicate the other opposite half, sickness, pain, ugliness, poverty, driven by the system of opposites that cons constitute our value system. But, but it is this intrinsically dualistic nature of scientific inquiry which renders it uh, ill-suited for providing adequate orientation and motivation for the inquiry it's conducting. Because the system of opposites that, is, that constitute the value system driving our progress in scientific research and the conceptual metaphors on which these conceptualizations are founded can only themselves be inquired into by looking through the illusion of these opposites, by transcending them in some way. And I think that's what ultimately means to be liberated. For freedom is this unmediated, direct apprehension of the absolute dimension of reality. The reality that is uninformational, undivided, unknowing, non-dual, beyond these opposites. Now, I think scientific inquiry will obviously continue yielding advancements in medicine, in agriculture, technology, and so on and so on. And these are going to be advancements in science in the sense that they are motivated and driven by these opposites that constitute the value system that makes them advancements from one half to the other. And human life needs opposites to, to find orientation. And we need to foster scientific inquiry to advance in this our life orientation. But I think scientific inquiry has to go hand in hand with the sort of inquiry that transcends the illusion of boundaries and the opposites they create, freeing us from, from our attachments to them, not basing our happiness and fullness of life on these boundaries. And we can call this kind of inquiry non-dual inquiry or Advaitic inquiry or to use a term from the Christian tradition, let's call it kenotic inquiry from the term kenosis, 
which means emptiness, because this, this canotic inquiry is an emptying inquiry. And now, how would such canotic inquiry look like? Well, we do not need to invent this sort of inquiry from scratch. We can walk in the tracks of those that preceded us in this journey of inquiry, in the same manner as we do with our scientific inquiry. So, this is a picture of a monument called Lightwell, and it is placed on the spot where St. Ignatius had the mystic experiences and the vision that led to his spiritual exercises. It consists of a 15 kilometers deep well covered by this spiral with the names of mystics of all times and traditions. So any form of contemplative prayer that we have received from humanity's wisdom traditions is canonic inquiry into our inmost depth. Meditation is probably the most obvious one. The silencing of our thoughts, images, and desires by this faithful repetition of a mantra or the mindful attention to the breath. This practice that makes the contemplative non-dual dimension of reality shine through all our activities. So my personal experience with my daily practice of meditation is that it has helped me to put to, to be in touch again with the contemplative core of scientific inquiry with this sense of awe and wonder that was driving it with the need of silence of attention, of care of respect with the love of the subject under investigation with the, with the pleasure of sharing ideas and with colleagues, and also with the humility that scientific inquiry nourishes. So I think scientists and engineers would benefit greatly in the daily task of conducting uh, scientific research and technological development if they would integrate these tasks with the daily practice of meditation. And this is ironic that this sort of inquiry, this canotic inquiry, which some orthodox scientists consider completely brainless, is actually what that which makes, which is most free and creative, and, and which is an essential feature of our humanity. But not only scientists and engineers would benefit from meditating. Humanity would be enriched, I think, by the outcomes of a more contemplatively driven science. Now, in addition to meditation, there are other few few there are a few other examples of of contemplative practices that would help us conjoin scientific inquiry with canonic inquiry. Contemplative reading and writing. So, the pressures for maximizing number of publications and number of citations in science is so high right now and the amount of papers that we need to read and review is so large that scientists have lost touch, I think, with the, with the value gained by working through a text slowly, allowing times for reflection and silence between different readings of the text. Much in the same sense as Alexio Divina, 
or for, of writing slowly. I think journaling can be a good contemplative practice to be brief, to write daily, and to cultivate uh, an attitude, taciturnitas, uh, an attitude to keep silent and only to express that which is really necessary to communicate and to do this communication with a loving attitude. I, very, I, I like very much a Gaelic proverb, a proverb that says, Upper Achbecken is Upper Gumae. <coughs> say but little and say it well. Now science is, there's so much papers published that say so much and uh, don't say very much at the same time. Deep listening and beholding. So my experience in scientific conferences is that there's not much very listening hap happening anymore in these conferences. So while the speaker goes through his slides, most of the audience is sitting busy with their laptops either answering email or working on their own slides for the talk they have to give a few minutes later. So sci sci scientists, I think, are forgetting to listen to each other attentively, respectfully. In our labs, we, I think we should practice attentive listening, going regular through the exercise of explaining each other, our research, our open questions, and to practice to repeat as closely as possible what our colleagues have said, until they, freely, they really feel hurt <coughs> if we have understood what they have explained to us. We also learn, think we have to learn to look at the big picture. We scientists are so often so worried by working out the details and making little improvements that we do not let sink the big picture. So to sit in front of what we have to research and to try to dissolve this subject-object boundary so as to let the immediate experience enrich the scientific investigation in order to complement in this way the objective detachment that we need to do to do the more analytical task. But to complement that is something that is also missing. Or to take a, a benedicting practice of welcoming the stranger, to cultivate this intellectual hospitality is also an important contemplative practice, I think, in scientific research. St. Benedict in his rule says, all guests who arrive be received like Christ. So scientists should be welcoming to new ideas that initially might look strange. Benedict further says, that in the reception of the poor and the pilgrims, the greatest care and solicitude should be shown. For as far as the rich are concerned, the very fear they inspire wins respect for them. So it is very easy to accept and to praise the work of some famous researcher or a team working at a famous university or research lab, but it is to the less known scientist to which we need to put more care and attention. So I think humanity's journey of inquiry is, I think, for it to be whole, this two-fold path of scientific and chaotic inquiry, of knowing and unknowing, 
itself a pair of opposites that has to be transcended as well. So, not two and not one. And this brings us back to Ramon Yui, the mystic which is the grandfather of artificial intelligence. Many scholars of Ramon Yui create a divorce between <coughs> Yui's emphasis on rationality and the subsequent development of his art to mechanize reasoning on one hand, and his mystical experience and calling that he felt to apply his art to the dialogue and argumentation with Muslims on the other hand. So one group has focused on Yui's logical system independently of his mystical experience, rendering it unnecessary for evaluating his contributions to the mechanization of thought. And others have focused mainly on his significant contributions to Catalan literature and to Christian mysticism. But I think Dewey himself did not separate rationality, the domain of scientific inquiry and dualistic knowing, from the direct experience of the divine, the domain of kenotic inquiry, and of non-dual unknowing. Because in order to construct this whole edifice of rational reasoning that he constructed, aimed at the task of conversion, he started with that, was that, with that which was shared by Christians and Muslims alike, namely the direct experience of the divine in which both traditions expressed by way of attributes associated to this direct experience. Goodness, greatness, eternity, power, wisdom, will, virtue, truth, and glory. So these letters that appear in these wheels that he uh, constructed are sim were symbols standing for these experiences that I just said. So his entire art would have been only abstract symbol manipulation had it not been grounded on this direct apprehension of the absolute. So reasoning and rationality only have a chance to convince and to convert if they are utterly linked with our inmost shared experience of reality. And, uh, and his inquiry was also a two-fold inquiry of what he called scientia and amantia. And he devised methods for both. The ars inventiva, or finding art, and the ars amativa, or loving art. So while, while while one guides the intellect to the truth, the other gives orientation to it, guiding the will towards what is good. So Yui explains how these inquiries are intimately paired, warning us not to consider these methods as belonging to different realms of endeavor. And as a mystic, he was also able to look through the boundaries 
into this non-dual dimension of reality. And so I conclude the second talk with a quote taken from the most famous of his mystical writings, the book of the lover and the beloved. Say, O fool, what is love? He answered, love is that which throws the free into bondage and to those that are in bonds give liberty. And who can say whether in love there is more of liberty or of bondage? Thank you.